Hello and welcome to The Intentional Clinician. I'm your host, Paul Krauss, Licensed Professional Counselor. Today's episode, I have a special guest. His name is Rafe Adams. This is going to be a little bit different than some of the episodes, and we're going to cover some different topics, but I think you'll see why it's related to philosophy, psychology, and counseling. Rafe Adams is a member of the Franciscans of Reconciliation. He is the bishop of the Mid-America Diocese of the Ecumenical Catholic Communion. Welcome, Rafe. Thank you, Paul. So, I normally start these shows with a little bit of personal anecdotes, so I was just curious if you could fill us in on how we know each other. We met when I was consulting at Lutheran Social Services in uh, psychosocial rehabilitation. I was on faculty uh, at Rush University at the time, and consulting was kind of my other gig, and uh, that's where we first met each other. Yes, I remember those days at Lutheran Social (laughs) Services, Um, although I didn't ever take a class from you at Rush. I'm sure you have a lot of stories about that, Um, but yeah, we had a good time. That was one of my first, I think, a first official paid job as an LPC in the state of Illinois, working on the west side of Chicago, and I remember it basically being a social work position, quote-unquote social work position that I was in, but I also was doing some counseling as well, and that was a, that was a fun time. So thanks for reminding me about that. <laughs> we both survived. <laughs> we did survive. So, what and, was a fun uh, place to be? Yeah, and I remember uh, you, I would take an extra long lunch, I found out later, uh, but I was taking too long of a lunch because <laughs> you were supposed to be consulting, and I think you did have an hour lunch, and I only had a half an hour lunch. I found this out um, after a few months later. I got scolded because um, I was spending my whole hour lunch, which your hour lunch, talking with you about various topics, psychology, counseling, spirituality, philosophy, uh, Chicago, uh, whatever craziness was happening at the time, and uh, and then I was informed, you you realize you only have a half an hour lunch in your salary. <laughs> and I said, I did not realize that. I thought my lunch was an hour. I guess I, I must have sounded very entitled. But uh, thanks for spending your lunches with me for so long. That was over 10 years ago at this point, yeah. <laughs> so. Well, I didn't mean to get you into trouble. I really had no idea what your hours were. <laughs> No, it's okay. I, I it wasn't too much trouble. It was a, it was a brief scolding from the from the Lutheran Social Services on high. So, so as we get into today's topic, I don't really know how to I don't really know how right. to announce this topic. But um, I did not grow up in the Catholic Church, um, and and so I have very little knowledge uh, about um, different people and figures from the church. But. One time you told me a story about St. Francis Assisi when we were uh, out at a restaurant in Chicago, and I thought, my goodness, this is an amazing story of a man, and I would love to know more about it. And since you're basically an expert on this, I wanted to bring you in. So I guess my first question is, how, do, how would you introduce St. Francis of Assisi to our listeners who may uh, have had been a Catholic or a Protestant or have, it, or have no religion or maybe another religion? And, and uh, we'll talk about why that's relevant. You'll see throughout the episode that this is not a, um, what do you call it, some sort of call for people to join us or whatever. But tell us about St. Francis and why that's relevant today. Well, oddly... I started reflecting on the youth of St. Francis Okay. again a few, well, weeks ago. 
mm-hmm. in response to what happened in Parkland, Florida. Oh, okay. There was, for me, a real resonance with the old legenda, the story of the conversion of St. Francis. And if I can talk about his life at 800 years ago and recognize the parallels that existed then with what's occurring now, we can see how little we've changed in so many ways. It was a story, it was a youth that was characterized by a lot of family disharmony, by a lot of political and social violence. So Francis, born in 1181, 800 years ago, into a very conflicted culture. There were all sorts of religious disputes and spats going on. There was an ongoing state of tension between the papacy and the imperium. In... uh, Assisi, where Francis grew up. In 1198, when Pope Innocent III became Pope and decided to reclaim the territories that the emperor had claimed throughout central Italy, the emperor's representative went to Pope Innocent in the town of Spoleto, not all that far from Assisi, in order to basically pay his obeisance to the Pope, to switch his allegiance, in effect. Uh, What happened immediately upon his departure was that the people of Assisi, as a body, rose up, dismantled his castle, destroyed the fortress, and then realizing the real significance of what they had just done, they used all the stones to now build a fortified wall around the city because things might not work out the way that they had hoped that it would. What happened as part of that process, though, was that the minores, the poor folks who were very much a part of this rebuilding endeavor, realizing how easy it was for the minor nobility and the aristocracy to rise up against the imperium and against the higher nobility, decided that perhaps they themselves could rise up in civil war against the city itself. It was a real dispute between the mayores, or the major class, those who have, and the menores, those who have not, the major and the minor. That civil war lasted for about two years. And it was not a very comfortable time, needless to say. And realized that Francis was about 16 years old when Pope Innocent ascended to the throne. So all of this is happening during his adolescence, Mm. during what today would be his high school years, though they didn't have certainly those educational structures then. But it's still a very formative time for a young man. Francis then went to war because the nobles who had left Assisi had found refuge in Perugia, 30, 35 miles away, and were now determined to take back their former position in Assisi, to reclaim their holdings. So there was now that resolution of the conflict in Assisi between the the mayores and the menores, and they had come together. The, The poor had gained some rights better than what they had had for, and they'd reached an accommodation. So Assisi went to war now with Perugia, 
which was trying to claim a suzerainty, a superiority over Assisi, and to reinstate the old nobility, which had fled the city to Perugia. At the Battle of uh, Colestrada, Francis, who at this point is 17, 18 years, no, 20 years old, was um, taken prisoner. Assisi lost the battle. And we really need to understand what a battle between even city-states looked like then. Yes. Warfare was not, the ma- was not a matter of smart bombs, smart missiles, right. and pushing a button. This was brutal hand-to-hand conflict. Right. People died painfully. They died brutally. And prisoners, very often those who couldn't be held for ransom, were speedily dispatched where they lay on the battlefield. So this was the type of warfare that Francis at 1920 saw firsthand. As a survivor who was better attired than he should have been for his social status, theoretically, he was assumed to be part of the nobility. And for that reason, he was taken to Perugia, imprisoned with the nobles and the aristocracy, so that he might be used for ransom. So, and he was used for ransom because of his status, which came from what? Where did his status come from? His status came from his father's wealth. Okay. His father, Pietro Bernardone, was a third-generation cloth merchant. Okay. And we're not talking about wool and flax. We're talking about fine fabrics. We're talking about purples. We're talking about somebody who's really very well-heeled and part of that new rising class of merchants. Ah, who just it's the beginning yes. of the it's the beginning of the middle class okay. really right. which began as the upper middle class yes all those people who really really have aspirations to nobility but lack the hereditary pedigree that gives it to them yes. so they were they were the the nouveau riche of the time okay. and because of that francis could pretty much have everything that he wanted and did So uh, there's that part of it. He was a child of affluence in a world in which most people were not affluent. And yet he went to war. And yet he went to war. Right. Well, he went to war because he was seeking to become a knight. Ah. He was aspiring to that honorary nobility that could possibly be obtained through battle. Right. Okay. But, But battle was not what he expected it to be. This was nothing that looked like chivalry. This was not the things that the troubadours had sung ballads about. This was bloody. This was violent. This was catastrophic. Yes. And so, go ahead. Keep going. No, please. So then he's, so now he's, just to catch us up from where you were, you were that he was imprisoned with the nobility. And he was kind of waiting because he wasn't executed because he was worth something, essentially, is what I'm hearing. Yeah. And he was in prison for at least a year. There's some discrepancy whether it was a year or slightly more. Right. But for at least a year, he was in prison in Perugia. And then uh, there was a truce. Okay. And peace, such as it was in those days, was restored. But that peace also required the paying of a ransom. Okay. You know. And was, was that paid in 
like gold like or money they we didn't have like currency like we do do they pay with a flock of sheep or what do they pay no with? there was actually there was actually gold coinage there were gold coinage okay you know, so that so his his freedom was bought uh when he returned home he began what was called in the legends in the legenda and understand that legend doesn't mean fable oh okay. it simply meant the early stories as they were handed down and right. codified. And that, and that comes and from the word, and how did that, you know that? that? That comes from the Latin legenda. Legenda, okay, right. <laughs> comes from I figured there is. was some Latin <laughs> hidden in there somewhere. Okay, Right, it, so the, the legend literally was the story as noted by peers, companions, friends, which ultimately found its way into biographies. So then St. Francis, there he... He's imprisoned. He was bought out of prison with a with a bond or a ransom. And then, uh, what happened to him next? What happened next is what's in the legenda, in the chronicles, the story um, was at least a year long illness. Retrospectively, a number of historians have assumed that that year long illness probably was tuberculosis. Oh, okay because the descriptions of his slow rate of recovery, of the loss of strength, his fatigue as a daily characteristic of getting from one place to another, simple mobility was exhausting. After the course of about a year, that seemed to resolve. But I think there was more to it than simply tuberculosis. There was more to this than simply a bacterial infection. Mm. There was that whole experience oh, right. of living through a rebellion, a two-year civil war, yeah. a battle right. on the way to Perugia, a year in jail, in prison. Yeah, that's, and I mean, in today's world, we might diagnose something possibly as having some post-traumatic stress. And losing your freedom in a damp dungeon for a year doesn't sound too great. Um, but And so that's some speculation on our part. But, I mean, back then, we didn't have the la- it wasn't the language of this. And I, I don't know much about this era, so I'm trying not to make assumptions. But it does seem like warfare between tribes and countries and city-states and all this thing was sort of the norm for territory, for resources, for whatever reason. Ultimately, it was the the primary way of resolving conflicts. Right. We didn't have all those venues that we have today that facilitate communication. Uh, Yeah, there you go. And by the time somebody did communicate, the message was sent three weeks ago, and a lot has happened in the meantime. Right, okay. So it was really difficult for people to even meet together to work toward resolution before the first started to fly. Mm -hmm. And... They call that period prior to this period the Dark Ages for a reason. Right, okay. And this is kind of the emergence from the Dark Ages, but it's not the noon of the daytime. Right. Um, So, and you know, one thing about Francis and the, in Perugia, in prison, he certainly was not in a, not necessarily in a deep, dank, dark dungeon. Oh, okay. That's an assumption. But, well, you had to keep them alive if you were going to get a good price for them. Right. But we can't exactly say that he was well-treated either. Mm. So there was confinement. There was constriction. And for someone of that age to experience all of those things without a respite from any of them before the occurrence of the next one, 
I think today we would kind of call that the whole process one long going, one ongoing right. intensive trauma. Yeah, absolutely, especially at that age. At that age and right. from which there is no time to recover. Yeah. And so, go ahead. There's also that constant exposure to violence. Mm, yes. You know, and the next part of Francis' life, and I'm going to segue into that, is that there would be a kind of a domestic violence mm. with which he had to contend as his own psychological, emotional, spiritual process of reintegration put him at odds with his father particularly and put his parents at odds with one another in terms of their attitudes toward him and his younger brother Angelo. There was a tremendous family conflict that resulted from Francis doing the best he could to become Francis again. Mm. So he's trying to just become who he is going to be and then this launches into some sort of family turmoil and you're telling it and almost domestic violence or actual violence or was it more of emotional spiritual violence what would you Well there was certainly actual violence actual violence okay. toward him right certainly on the part of his father um Admittedly, you know, we can't draw close parallels. It was a whole different family structure and a whole different definition of what constituted violence. Right, that's true. You know, particularly within how families operated. But we can draw some loose parallels, I think. Um, I would suggest that even though our whole family structure is different today, when you're on the receiving end, it felt as bad then as it does I'm now. sure it did. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. No. But Francis, in this year of illness, then sets about, when he's finally able to get up and move about, he's not the person that he was before. He tries to regain his old identity, Mm. and that was the child of privilege, the son who was always at the Bacchanalia, the king of the feast. Mm Mm-hmm the little rabble-rouser who got everything that he wanted and was the person who planned the best parties and who loved to sing, yes, who loved to carouse, and did so with, with a vengeance. Yeah. He attempts to throw himself back into that. He also decides that one more time he's going to try to be a knight. And heads off to a war, you know, to a battle that's upcoming, almost as though they were scheduled when troops gathered, you know, (laughs) uh, towards Spoleto. And along the way, he had a dream. And his dreams at this point in his life seem to be terribly vivid. Hmm. He remembers them as though they're living experiences when they're reported to to Brother Leo, to, to the other to the companions who ultimately provided the information for his first biography by Brother Thomas of Chilano, which was written within two years of his death. So it's not like old-time fables coming down at us. These were the primary reports of eyewitnesses to a living chronicler, all of whom knew Francis personally. Right. So with that little segue, let me return to the point. Yes, he's going to the battle. He's going to the battle in Spoleto. The first night on the way there, he has a dream. And he's in his father's shop where he used to sell cloth. 
and he sees around him not bolts of fabric, but shields, armor, spears. And he hears a voice that says to him, all of these will belong to you and to your knights who gather around you. And he wakes up the next morning thinking, well, I'm really meant to be a knight. Mm. Until the following evening when he develops fever. Okay. And which is probably a recurrence of the illness. It's an exacerbation coming back to haunt him. This was not something that you, we didn't have tuberculosis, you know. Right. He's got it. He'll have it for the rest of his life. Right. Okay. But during a fever, he has another dream. And in that other dream, it's the voice that he heard in the first dreams, basically telling him, you missed the point. <laughs> oh. Let me explain it to you, Francis. Who is more important, the master or the servant who does his master's bidding? Mm. And in his dream, his dream dialogue, Francis answered and said, well, the master. And the voice summarily responded to him, then why are you running after the servant? Mm. Go home. Wow. And with that, I'm giving a rather vernacular translation, but sure. with that, Francis returned to Assisi. And again, there was that period of withdrawal followed by this period of wanting once again to be the person that he was. Mm. And skipping, skipping ahead by a few months, Francis was engaged in revelry with a group of his friends. They were going through the streets of Assisi, singing the way they always did once they'd had uh, more than enough wine. Right. <laughs> you know, uh, kind of the mobile party. When he started to fall behind the group, and they moved on ahead. And as the biographers tell it, he was just kind of overcome with this feeling that I'm trying hard to be that which I was, but I was never really that to begin with. Mm. And the first response he had was kind of an abiding sense of emptiness. Oh, there's nobody in here. I'm not that. But what am I if I'm not that? And then along, along with that came an indescribable sense of peace. I don't have to be that. I don't have to be anything. That's permission. That's permission. I'm hearing, I'm hearing disorientation followed quickly by questioning identity, identity shift, transformation, these, I'm using some modern words now. Yes. And then, uh, <laughs> and then all of a sudden, permission to be what? The what is what's open. To be open. To be open to whatever one might become. Francis had always been as much his mother's child as he was his father's. Hmm. His father, a well-heeled Italian, had married or met and married Pica Bernardoni during a visit to France, to Provence, where he was selling and buying fabric. 
Pica was therefore French. Hmm. And hence came the name Francesco. Ah. Frenchy. <laughs> <laughs> and there are various, various different opinions about how he came to have that name. He was originally baptized Giovanni. He was originally John. Oh. And okay. his father was away. And upon his return, one story has it that he wanted the boy renamed Francesco. Hmm. Another story is that it was a name that was simply acquired by virtue of the fact that he and his mother often spoke French together. Ah. Now, and uh, as the biographer said, you know, in regard to Francis, at least, badly. <laughs> 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 but, um, but, you know, but there has been some conjecture about, you know, who this remarkable woman was, you know, and um, a little segue here. And that was that the south of France was notorious for having a good number of Waldensians. Backstory, followers of Peter of Waldo, who was someone who believed that the scriptures, particularly the Gospels, should be taken more literally. Oh. And that in taking the Gospels literally, poverty, voluntary poverty, the giving up of a preoccupation with this world's goods was a prerequisite to a true following of Christ. Ah, okay. One cannot serve both God and money. Take what you have, sell it, give it to the poor, take up your cross, and come with me. Consider the lilies of the field, the birds of the air. They don't toil, they don't spin. Yet Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Ask not what we are to eat, ask not what we are to wear. So this was very much the religion of many people in the south of France. So there has been some conjecture that this was part and parcel of the dowry that Pika brought with her. Right, sort of a literalism of you do what it says. You do what it says. Right. You know, and that, and that, that kind of almost today we would say not... Well, not necessarily anti-capitalistic, but anti-acquisitional stance. Right, right. Like, I'm not just going to keep trying to power over uh, people to get more and more and more. I should be thinking about my brother and sister and the orphan and the old woman uh, or old man or whoever is uh, a widow. You know, is that... I'm quoting something very loosely, I think. But essentially that... Um, that not striving, but thinking of others and trying to put others first. In a word, yes. In a word, yes. Yeah, okay. that's a whole nother. <laughs> so, but this, yeah. so there is some conjecture there that, you know, that this was something that he may have gotten from his mother. This, this, this attitude of, well, compassion, concern, the importance of sharing, and that more literal following of the gospel put this up against Pietro Bernardone, who was the rise of the new capitalist class, who was very acquisitional, very conscious of his social status. And, yeah, a little potential conflict going on there. Yeah, just a little bit. But when we look at the influence, somewhere Francis got an influence toward piety, toward religion. And in that process of deciding, well, I'm not that, who am I going to become? 
he began to spend more and more time in reflection, more and more time going to a place called the Carchery, the caves outside of Assisi, where he would spend hours in a cave praying. He would spend hours wandering around when he wasn't involved in the work in his father's shop. And I suppose the term we'd use today is trying to discover himself. And more and more time in the type of reflection that I'm looking for a phrase here. The type of reflection that helped him ask the questions of himself Mm -hmm. that he'd never asked before. And he set about, for whatever reason, to begin to try to come to terms with those things with which he was most afraid. So he's reflecting, he's contemplating, wondering, he's living the questions in the caves, he's asking... He's also praying for who knows what. But then he, the next part you just said, wow, my brain just, that something just thieved that thought right out. You were saying, essentially, he was... Whether he framed it in these terms or not, he began to face his fears. Oh, face his fears, right. And so that is something, uh, you know, we see in psychology as people become more aware that there's the positive and the negative. They They become more aware of what actually scares them not what they thought they were afraid of. And if we can face that, we might change. We might move forward. So anyway. Well, I think part of it was, and again, I don't have him here to ask him, you know, but just his whole existence for as long as he could remember had been in one way or another fearful. Oh, right. Yeah. War. War. And uh, civil war. war. (laughs) No one wants that. (laughs) There was that, you know. Um, But what he was most afraid of at that point in time was, and I'm going to say, you know, I'm going to step away. I'm going to say he was afraid of dying, but I'm going to say also he was afraid of of how one goes about doing it. He was afraid of losing his health. This is all, I'm filling in the gaps here. It could be said that he might be, I mean, that humbles you to whenever we are injured in our lives or have some sort of medical problem, that is the great humbler, usually. I mean, not always, but I, I often see, uh, you know, if somebody comes to my practice because their doctor said, if you don't stop doing X, Y, and Z, you're going to be dead in 10 years, and you have grandchildren, I see some change pretty quick. Um, so that is the great humbler. He has t- tuberculosis. Tuberculosis. I can't even say it. TB. Let's just say TB. Um, he's got that. He's been in battle. He's seen people gruesomely die. He's been in prison. So there's been some humbling from just sort of the revelry you can have on the streets with your friends when you're a rising uh, middle, upper class individual. Well, the people of which, or the situation that he found most frightening was leprosy. Ah. And he kind of fixed on that, you know. One might say, I'm not going to attempt a diagnosis here. That's not my job. (laughs) But he had a preoccupation with lepers and leprosy. Interesting. When he even passed a leprosarium, he would cover his nose and always try to go upwind of it. If he saw a leper coming, he would turn and walk the other way. He didn't want to pass them on a roadway. Right. 
Well, back then, leprosy was completely incurable, correct? Leprosy was completely incurable, and like tuberculosis, they had no idea what this was. You had to live in a leper colony, essentially. You had to live in a leper colony. And they were sp- supposedly called unclean? Is that what it was? Term- one well, of the terms? there was an ambivalent an ambivalent attitude toward lepers. On the one hand, they were to be treated with compassion. Sure. Which meant that people were expected to give alms to lepers. They were expected to, but not live with them. Oh, no, (laughs) right. (laughs) But on the other hand, they were avoided. Avoided as though they had the plague, because in a kind of sense, they did. So lepers had to wear a special garb. Lepers, the shadow of a leper could not fall upon a well person. Mm-hmm. They had mm-hmm. to carry a clapper or a bell to announce their presence yeah. so that they didn't accidentally stumble upon someone. In a number of places, there was even a former church ceremony that was the equivalent of a, a funeral for someone who was now the living dead and going into this form of exile. Right, and then that would break apart families and communities, essentially, coming so. from the community of the, you know, people without leprosy to the community of people with leprosy, the outcasts. So being a leper was much worse than simply having a wasting disease. Right. And Francis inevitably was the person who had to have related this story to the people who ultimately chronicled it. One day he was preoccupied with his musings, riding his horse, when he looked up and saw a leper there in the road in front of him. The horse actually started, and that's what pulled him out of his reflection. He saw the leper. His first impulse was to turn and leave, Mm -hmm. and he almost did, and then he stopped. He got off of his horse. He took the coin from his purse, walked up to the leper, put the coin in the leper's hand, and kissed his hand. Oh, my. That is an amazing moment. And that's what he described as the beginning of his conversion. I would describe the beginning of his conversion, you know, as that moment in the dark on the street when he let his friends wander away from him and accepted the emptiness. That, to me, was the beginning of his conversion. I would say that sounds like the beginning because this sounds like he's going full into it. He goes from being... you know, repulsed by lepers and preoccupied with getting leprosy to touching and kissing their hand. That's pretty amazing. And I'm just going to, you know, share something here at the time, near the time of his death, 20-odd years later. Um, Francis wrote his testament, his last will, his last testament to whoever wants to read it, specifically to his brothers and sisters in that order, that Franciscan order, which certainly wasn't called that then. But it goes like this. When I was living a life of sin, the sight of a leper was repulsive to me. Just being in their presence was bitterness. And then the Lord led me to live among them. And I worked mercy together with them. Hmm. And what had been bitterness was turned into sweetness of mind and heart. And not long after that, I left the world behind me. Wow. 
So I can understand why he saw that moment, the overcoming of that fear, as the beginning of whatever is going to come next. First had come that sense of emptiness. Now came with it, I think, that sense of victory over self, for lack of another phrase. I have overcome me. (laughs) I have overcome my biggest enemy. Not just the ego. I feel like he overcame his ego, and he also, I don't know what else there is, but I mean, he, I feel like he overcame his his fear of death, his, his um, anything going on with his body, any pride about his body and his wealth. Um, I feel like that's far more than the ego. You're, I mean, you said self, so I guess that sums it up, yep. but I, I wanted to kind of elaborate. Uh, this is... I think we do a lot of work in counseling and psychology. You know, we try to become aware, overcome our ego, allow the emptiness in to listen to what's going on beneath the surface and all of that. And, but I mean, I don't want to be giving up my health anytime soon. I'm not really too keen on that. I mean, there's certain limits to what I'm giving up. And so St. Francis, well, he wasn't Saint then, but, uh, Francis of Assisi, um, basically kisses the leper on the hand, which is almost a symbol of what then happened next. What then happened next was that he began to live among lepers. He began to care for them. He found a tumble-down little church called San Damiano on the plain below Assisi. And that was now, instead of the cartery, instead of the caves, this is the place where he went to pray. And as he was at prayer one day, he heard a voice, again, this time, he assumes speaking to him from the crucifix in this tumbled down ruin of a chapel. And the voice said, Francis, repair my house. Can't you see it's fallen into ruin? Now, a little word about the hearing of voices here. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Psychology counseling crew, please continue to listen. So, you know, a little word about the hearing of voices. I think part of what we have to do whenever Francis said, and the Lord himself revealed it to me, or the Lord spoke to me, I don't know that we're talking about literal auditory hallucination here. You know, and because, you know, and and though to some extent that might have occurred in someone's mind. Sure. You know, because it was a different culture and a different world. And it was given that different culture, cognitive processes were certainly not defined by us the way they are today. Right. You know, if I can give my favorite little example, you know, rather a recent one, you know, years ago when I used to have to be the lector for certain holy days, I always tried to keep a straight face. You know, the lesson for the Feast of St. Philip Neri, whose heart so expanded with the love of God that he broke three ribs. They discovered this when they were looking for relics and did a postmortem, you know, and they decided, oh, well, that's what happened. His heart expanded with love of God. He broke three ribs. My response at that postmortem would be at a terrible case of acromegaly and brittle bone syndrome. Right. You know, St. Mary Magdalene Parsi, whose heart so burned with the love of God that she had to pour cold water on her left breast to ease the pain. You know, she did not have access to Prilosec. Right. I mean, you know, so, 
we really are hard pressed to project backward. <laughs> right. And so that's why we, that's why we live in the mystery. We live in the tension between, you know, uh, what we're hearing, what we're reading, what we're understanding, and then and and then also the the literal, but also the mystical, because there's mystical yeah. elements to Francis's story. Um and and so and and so that's where we're not going to draw any conclusions. That's up to the the reader and the listener to draw what, yep. whatever they want to assign to that. Because as we know, the realm from literalism to metaphor is a long and winding uh, path, and quite a divide even now in this country about what to take literally and what is metaphor and what is. So I, w- that'll be podcast four hours later. So, but so I appreciate that just for the listener who, um, who might be, uh, not sure what to make of this and, and trying to put it through a different lens that they're not accustomed to. But, uh, yeah. And I, it's also fun. So, (laughs) and so, yeah, anyway, we digress. Um, the point was, is that St. Francis did hear a voice or it was an internal voice or whatever you want to call it, or his perception of the divine. And he decided, and he heard the voice from the crucifix. And then what was the next part? Then he said about rebuilding San Damiano. Ah, okay. He went, he begged stones. He would, uh, offer people a prayer for a stone. (laughs) Ah, wait a minute. Have I heard that before? Is that a saying? Is that a saying? A prayer for a stone. Okay, anyway, keep going. You give me a stone, I'll say this prayer for you. Right. I'll sing a song for you. I'll do but I need stone. Right. (laughs) And there is there is one again legend, you know, we can't verify the accuracy of it, was that uh, that several of the little chapels in the plain below Assisi may have been plundered of their stones to build the fortification around the city in preparation for war. And so subsequent biographers later saw a real significance in Francis now begging stones back from Assisi to rebuild the churches that they had destroyed oh my. in preparation for right. fighting each other. It's coming full circle now. Yeah. <laughs> Which, you know, we'll never be able to track that one down, but I think it's an interesting little gloss. But Francis said about rebuilding San Damiano, and then when it was done, he rebuilt San Pietro, and then when it was done, he rebuilt Porzioncola. And is, can I ask a question? Is this while he was living with the lepers? This is, in the meantime, you know, he's going back and forth to Gubbio. Oh, back and forth, okay. You know, spending time in the leprosarium, working there. Right. And then also, you know, working to rebuild mm. these various chapels. Yes. Now, and I'm going to kind of segue ahead. This behavior is viewed, understandably, as being quite odd. Sure, right. <laughs> you know, we didn't have our delicate language, or, well, our delicate language is not all that delicate for a lot of people these days. Sure, absolutely. But in people with what could be perceived as mental illness were not well treated. They were very often viewed to be, you know, demon-possessed. Oh, sure. Or at the very least, you know, not too bright or being beyond the pale. And we're just starting to get past that today <laughs> because I've, I still hear some of that language, unfortunately. Uh, there's still the stigma. Uh, so, but yes, yep. not to totally digress into that, but people were viewing this as 
possibly that there was something wrong with him and the others that there were was doing this? Definitely something wrong with him. Oh, yeah. At this point, there were no others doing this. But he was building the church on his own. He was doing it on his own. Okay. Forgive my ignorance. He okay. Was, yeah. He was, I didn't realize that. He was busy rebuilding these things. You know? I can see and that. And he was going into Assisi to beg for food and to beg for stones. Ah, I knew that. I just thought but he might have had a helper. some folks were kind of coming out and bringing stuff. Oh, I see. So, <laughs> so those, uh, not everyone thought he'd completely lost it. The person who did think he had completely lost it uh, was his father, Pietro, and following after his father, his brother, Angelo. And so Pietro, as a very prominent citizen and a major benefactor of the city-state, went so far as to demand that Francis somehow be indentured to to repay him for everything that he had spent personally on rebuilding San Damiano and supporting the poor old priest there and oil for the lamps and whatever he had done Mm -hmm. before Francis had moved out, basically. what had happened shortly prior to this was that Francis had been begging for stones. There was a group of children harassing him. Pietro was told that it was his son, the madman, who was the butt of the joke, and had laid hands on him, beaten him, and thrown him into a dungeon in the basement of his shop. Oh, no. and, and that was kind of the... This is what the relationship had come to. This is a complete rejection of him. This is a person. complete rejection. You're, you know, a crazy person that needs to be imprisoned, and your, your, his father and his brother both, basically, publicly, um, saying we're against you, and you're, you're nuts. You're nuts, and your embarrassment to us. Mm, the shame factor. The yes. shame factor was the big one. Well, Pietro was away on business, and Pika opened the door. <laughs> <laughs> Fed him, (laughs) let him out of jail, in effect. And he just went back to doing what he had done. Mm -hmm. It was at that point that Pietro demanded from from the city legislature that they take him to trial and that they, you know, just develop perhaps we'd call it some type of indenture system Mm -hmm. where he had to pay back what he had squandered Ah. And then be banned from the city. So also a a complete rejection of his work, his life's work that he saw as important. So spitting on the life's work. And now you're officially an outcast. We're going to ban you from the city. Right. That was the petition. A bunch of blows right in a row. So magistrate sent people, the gendarmerie, to go apprehend him while he was in the city to bring him to trial. And Francis said, well, you have no jurisdiction over me. Mm. And their question, of course, was why not, said, I am under the jurisdiction of Bishop Guido. So apparently the Bishop of Assisi (laughs) (laughs) had, quote, tonsured him, had cut his hair, which identified him publicly as a cleric. Someone, not a priest, not a deacon, but a minor order, but somebody under the bishop's protection. Okay. So it was then the determination was made that, well, you've got to bring this to Bishop Guido. 
And so a time was set for the trial, but it would be an ecclesiastical rather than civil forum. Pietro was there. He presented his case. Francis responded by basically saying, wait just a moment. (laughs) I have an answer for you. And went back into the bishop's palace. Came out, except for the breechcloth, the underwear that he was wearing. Oh, wow. Brought all of his clothing. Hmm. And laid them at the feet of his father and said, I return to you all that I have that is from you. And from this day on, I can no longer say Pietro Bernardoni is my father. I only have one father. Our father. The father of us all. Our father who art in heaven. And that that was pretty much the end of that familial relatedness. So another another trauma in a way. I mean, it's powerful because we can see how, why he moved into this new part of his life. But eventually, it's essentially like, I'm sorry, I'm 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 not your son anymore. It's, I mean, it it came to that. There was no reconciliation with the family. Maybe I don't know about the mother, but with the with the father and the brother. With the father and the brother, there was none. And I don't just I saw it. I know the same. And I think there's a subtlety in the language that was used. It wasn't, I'm saying, I'm not your son anymore. It's saying, in a sense, I can't be your son because you won't be my father. Wow. I no longer call Pietro Bernardoni my father. And there was also in the legenda the story of St. Francis encountering Pietro in the street one day later in time, obviously, when Pietro began to hurl curses at him, you know, and demeaning language. And Francis knelt down next to an old beggar who was with him and said, bless me, Father. And the old beggar blessed him and laid hands on him. And Francis, in effect, said, you are no longer my father, but I have another father. I have other fathers. So we would call that today, I think, a family of choice. Yeah, yeah. I think that's the popular word for it. I mean, I see that all the time. Uh, I can't say where, but I've heard of it and seen it multiple times where somebody's family of origin essentially rejects who they are, what their choices are, uh, what their life's work is. And in various degrees, they sometimes it's just estrangement and... and, uh, a geographic move, and sometimes it's much worse. There's no reconciliation. Yeah. The uh, end, what Francis called, or Thomas of Chilano called, and getting it secondhand, I'm sure, from Francis, was that his conversion was complete one day on the Feast of St. Matthias when he'd gone into Assisi uh, to church for the Mass and heard the Gospel read. Mm-hmm. And part of that gospel was, well, the whole gospel was about the commissioning of the disciples as Jesus sent them out. Right. Take with you neither gold nor silver, no shoes, no change of clothing, no staff for your way. Into whatever house you enter, say peace to this house. And if a person of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. If not, it will return to you. So 
Francis took away from that in his literal fashion, a literal poverty. Yes. And this was the, the end of that ongoing process. And the abandonment of all desire for possession of material objects. And in its place, the gospel of peace. Peace Wherever be with you. Wherever you go, bring peace. Mm. So Francis, actual peace. Actual peace. Not peace not in theoretical the theoretical peace. Not peace in the Roman sense. Not peace, not Pax Romana, Lex right. Romana. Yeah. But true peace. Right. Not war is peace, the 1984 sense. Real but peace. Peace real to peace. others, peace to your enemies. And so Francis would say, you know, in his testament, the Lord, the Lord himself revealed this to me. <laughs> That we should always say to people when we meet them, the Lord give you peace. You know, the epitome of Francis's peacemaking becomes evident years later at the Battle of Damietta. When everyone is trying to find ways to kill all of these Muslims, and Francis decides to go meet with Sultan Malik al-Kamel and talk about God. Excellent. <laughs> and, and so what did him and the Sultan uh, find out? They, they met, met for five days. Neither okay. converted either. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but they both took away a love and respect for each other. Yes. You know, in the, you know and just crossing that demilitarized zone with only one word of Arabic, which was soldan. Soldan. What's that mean? <laughs> Sultan. Oh, oh, bring me to the Sultan. <laughs> Oh. Which was just, you know, for, for the Francis of 15 years later, you know. And we just kind of sort of wrap this up. You know, I've been preoccupied here with talking about that whole conversion process, right. as Francis described it. You know, shortly after Francis went through this discomforting interchange with his father, and returned to San Damiano and to Porzioncola and to the rebuilding of churches. Within a matter of a few months, Brother Bernard of Contavale came from among the gentry, from among the nobility, to help to rebuild the church. Shortly after that, Peter Catani, a prominent lawyer of the city and advisor to the city council, did this bizarre thing where they walked away from it to go help this lunatic build churches and take care of lepers. Wow. By 1224, there were 5,000 of them. And these were people that also basically took a vow of poverty, in a sense? Is these that people true? took the same vow of poverty, mm -hmm. of, of chastity or celibacy, right. and of obedience to the gospel, and this very literal interpretation of the gospel. But Francis wasn't done just with that, you know. Uh, one day... Chiara, Chiara de Sisi, St. Clair, right. and her sister, St. Agnes, first Claire, then Agnes, and then their mother, Ortolana, presented themselves to Francis wanting to follow this same way of poverty. And Claire, from the nobility, <laughs> became the first of the sisters minor. Oh, that word, friars minor? Sure. It's not coincidental. There were the mayores and the menores. And these are people from among the mayores who are choosing to become menores and expressing a strong solidarity 
with the poor, with the disenfranchised, with lepers, with all the excluded. But this is a further development, and I've spent practically an hour talking about the conversion of St. Francis. Well, I think that's important because why would, I don't think we can appreciate the work he did and what he started unless we know how he changed and how he was converted. Well, like I said, Lakeland, Florida started this for me. So let's, let's bring it into today. <laughs> so I, I've heard a lot of parallels, and I see a lot of, you know, there's a lot of disruption, social discord going on right now. And the most obvious thing, which is factual, is that the gap between the rich and the poor in the United States is very, very large currently and very disparate. Um, some people are comparing it to the 1920s. I don't really know. I'm not an economist, but I can tell it's, it seems to be getting worse. Um, there's that comparison I can see. Um, there's not civil war, but social discord among groups that can't seem to talk to each other. Uh, there's a preoccupation with making money. Um, there is a, uh, what I would call a operative myth that the bottom line is really what it's all about. Um, and there is seeming to be constant war or gestures of war, um, uh, usually abroad at those people. Um, those are some things I'm seeing in comparison with, with uh, a little bit of what you kind of started the story with. But tell us about why this story is relevant to you now, because you said the Parkland, Florida started this. Parkland, Florida started this particular perambulation for me in the life of Francis. When I looked at children of privilege mm -hmm. being confronted with an unimaginable violence and the effect that that has to be having on them, life will never be the same again. There's no going back to the way things were before. And I just have to wonder, you know, how this is going to continue to affect them. But I also see that resilience of youth, that ferocity, <laughs> and I am just in awe of them. Yes. And I am so inspired by them. Yeah, they're that, getting a lot of flack, but keep going. That, that I couldn't help <laughs> <laughs> but see the parallel. Ah, Yes. And to realize that that old story is still new. And that so many people in their own ways confronted with what should destroy them, in one sense, does destroy a pre-existing identity. But at the same time, provides the foundation for a new one, a stronger one, perhaps 180 degrees the reverse of what it had been before. That there is a resilience that wins through to the true self. And that some people have to find their true self sooner than others by force of circumstance. And that was definitely a circumstance that disrupted um, their lives and the lives of the entire school, the entire community, and, you know, us as witnesses, it disturbs our comfort as well. And you hear oftentimes in counseling that people are so sick of small talk and surface 
and they're looking for authenticity. That's a trend right now. But authenticity is a huge topic we can't get into, but sometimes people think they have to find it by withdrawing. And I mean, Francis withdrew, but Francis also listened. And he didn't just try to clear his mind. He listened and he asked questions. He asked big questions. He prayed. He also saw that this, he, he saw the folly of his partying. Not that partying is bad. I'm saying, you know, we sometimes need to, when, if you must sin, right? Sin boldly. Okay. <laughs> I, was, I was quoting that. Um, but he, he saw that this wasn't what life was all about. And that he, to find his true self, he, he, I mean, this is a huge example. He stripped away everything and took a vow of poverty. And essentially, I mean, his legacy lives on. But tell me about, uh, he, what did he start? Because now, I mean, just for history purposes, people are called Franciscans. And, and they're modeled after what he started. Isn't that true? And, and the, their uh, philo- philosophy or their paradigm? What he started changed history. He started the, quote, the Order of Friars Minor, um, or the Franciscan Friars, the Order of Poor Ladies, the Poor Clares, the, the female corollary, but also the brothers and sisters of penance. These were married men and women These were people who lived in the world, but at the same time acquired for themselves that same worldview, adopted that same spirituality, and took it to the places where they lived and worked. And there became a tremendous transformation of Europe as a result of this. When we look at the Franciscan intellectual legacy, Roger Bacon, who in a lot of ways is the father of the scientific method, William of Ockham, mm. Ockham's Razor. Right. These were Friars Minor. Wow. These were not just random Oxford <laughs> philosophers. Right. These were people coming from that tradition. Anthony of Padua, um, who became the patron saint of Padua in Italy, who became a real social reformer. And my favorite, my favorite reference to St. Anthony was at his funeral. When in the eulogy it was said he's left us a bittersweet legacy because he was the sweet consoler and the bitter accuser of the rich. And a substance commentary said, there are times when one cannot console the poor without accusing the rich. (laughs) And it was Anthony who taught us that lesson when he tangled with the legal structure of Padua and the things that were the legal disenfranchisement and exploitation of the minoris. So that was the beginning of it. At a time of war between Christendom and Islam, for Francis to walk into the sultan's camp and say, let's talk. This was a whole different approach to conflict resolution. Right. That's amazing. Yeah. And for it, certainly, it didn't make a big dent at the time. But it made a lot of smaller dents. So that whole Franciscan preoccupation with the gospel transformed medieval Europe. One example in the rule for the brothers and sisters of penance, those people who lived in the world, two codicils of that rule. One was that they were prevented, they were prohibited from ever taking an oath. And the other was, well, the taking of oaths, this is not, you know, swearing to tell the truth in a jury trial. This is refusing to swear fealty to one's Lord 
should he require your services in battle. I'm not going. Right. Well, who always fights the wars? Uh, yes. Well, this was <laughs> the the, literally the first recorded, I think, historical example of a bunch of people getting together and say, suppose somebody called a war and nobody came. Ah. You know, the other codicil in that rule is that the brothers and sisters of this order are not to take up lethal weapons, carry them about, or use them against anyone. So there was no gun control, but this is certainly weapons control, that we don't do war anymore. Other people may, but we're going to be the voice of reason. So the Franciscans, in a way, and with St. Francis's example, were a, were a example, I don't know how to say this, I was going to say a qualifier, but essentially humanizing your enemy, really living out, love the enemy as thyself, and see the human in them, see the good in them, and work past the wrong, work see past the See more than the, the human and the good, but to see, to see the divinity. The divinity, the okay, sense. there you go, yeah. You know, that, you know of all creatures... Brother Cricket. Mm -hmm. I mean, come on. <laughs> yeah. But he called all living things brother and sister. Right. And that's, he did have a whole, that's a whole other part, but he had a whole affinity with animals, right? As he had well. a whole affinity with all creation because, because in the words of St. Bonaventure, he recognized them as brothers and sisters because we all have the same father and come from the same source. And they are to be as revered and respected. <laughs> creation itself belongs to God. And our responsibility is to safeguard, maintain it, shepherd it, and rejoice in it. So there was that love for creation, that seeing, in the words of St. Bonaventure, he made of all things a ladder by which to climb higher and higher to come closer and closer to God, by seeing God reflected in all that is, and honoring it, respecting it. When it came to the disenfranchised people, and I'm going to come as close to this one as I can, probably a loose paraphrase. Whenever you see a poor person, an icon of our blessed Savior and his dear mother in their powerlessness and disenfranchisement is, hold, uh, is held up before your eyes for reverence. So seeing in the poor the icon of Christ, it was a new worldview it was a literal evangelicism, not in the sense in which that word is often used sure. today. It, when you, and you're not, so what I'm going to just grossly summarize this for what you mean by that, I believe, is it's more about a way of living and seeing others instead of, I believe these 12 things, now I can chill out. You got it. And those people are lost, and, but instead of this, I'm going to go in to those others. I'm going to help the others, and I'm going to live this way. I'm not just going to say, this is what I believe, so I'm special. Is that what I'm hearing? That's what you're hearing. Okay. I'm going to give you one last quote. One last quote, and then we're this. off. Where there is charity and wisdom, there cannot be fear or ignorance. Where there is patience and humility, there cannot be anger or agitation. Where there is poverty embraced with joy... There is no greed nor avarice. 
where there is reflection and meditation and rest. There is neither anxiety nor restlessness. Where there is reverence at the presence of God, it guards the entrance and the enemy has no place to come in. Where there is a heart full of mercy and discernment, there is neither excessiveness nor hardness of heart. This is a quote from Francis. I love it. Well, we have probably could go on for two or three hours, but we will miss our dinner reservation. So Yes, we will. <laughs> I just want to thank you so much, Rafe, for coming on the show, and I'm sure our listeners have enjoyed it. Uh, if you have any feedback, you can shoot me an email, uh, anyone who's listening, and thanks so much again. And thank you. Peace and all good. And there you have it. This has been Paul Krauss interviewing Rafe Adams for another episode of the Intentional Clinician Podcast. I'm very grateful for Rafe coming on the podcast and telling us about Francis of Assisi. I learned a lot, and I hope you did too. I really appreciated Rafe's ability to tell a story and to really bring us into it. Interestingly enough, he did have notes with him, but I don't believe he looked at them the entire time we were recording. So that was all from memory, including all of those quotes. He really has a wonderful mind, and I hope to bring him back onto the podcast again because he is hilarious and tells really funny stories about his childhood and other events throughout his life and has a very life-affirming perspective to share. In the meantime, Rafe Adams is difficult to find. I know he has multiple published articles in a now-defunct journal. Um, I remember seeing one article that was 70 pages on some history of the Catholic Church and other spiritual uh, issues. I believe he also has some articles published about counseling. And I found it profound that even hundreds of years later, how the story of Francis of Assisi and his conversion and those things that happened to him are relevant today and with the human condition and all of the issues we're facing in the United States and the world. So I really hope you enjoyed that episode. If you didn't know, I am a behavioral health consultant, I'm a full-time private practice counselor, and I work as a manager of the Office of Health for Life Grand Rapids. 
Also, recently I created something called the National Violence Prevention Hotline Project, which you can find more out about at violencepreventionhotline.org. If you are in the Grand Rapids or Michigan area and you are looking for a counselor, there are many fine ones that work in my office. You can find out more by going to www.healthforlifegr.com. in your life, whether you want to grow, whether you want to learn, whether you want to change, whether something is going wrong, whether you're going through a difficult time, whatever the reason, if you need a licensed professional counselor, please go to your internet browser or call your insurance company and try to find a licensed professional counselor in your area that can meet your needs. Favorite meal that you could have, no holds barred? There are so many. Okay. I can't do that. Okay. I am uh, not one of those people. Favorite meal that you would have if you were visiting Tennessee? Favorite meal I would have if I were visiting Tennessee would absolutely have to be barbecue at the rendezvous. Excellent. And where, where is the rendezvous? Uh, the rendezvous is downtown. In it's mm-hmm. which city? In Memphis. In I'm Memphis. sorry. That's right. You say Tennessee. I know Tennessee. Really, I understand is three states. Though we pretend it's one. Okay. People who are from the Delta know that Memphis is the heart of Tennessee. Hill Country people believe that Nashville is the center of all things. And then you go farther east, and there's nothing there that Knoxville and God help us Chattanooga. But uh, but no, for me, Tennessee is Memphis, and Memphis is barbecue. 